And uh, I'm talking about Pakistan, but also a bit about um, specialist journalism and uh, the way journalism may work in the future. Just, just a bit on my background. I'm mainly with the BBC, freelance journalist, and do um, you know, radio mainly, but also online and TV a bit. And my general contention here is that uh, journalists are going to have to specialise more in the future, and rather than working for big employers, journalists will, many journalists anyway, will have to develop expertise and sell their services to whatever outlets they can uh, manage to place their material on. Uh, and so when we get to the questions, I'm very happy to deal more with reporting from Pakistan, the difficulties of doing that, the challenges of doing that, the issues that, uh, ethical issues, whatever issues you'd like to discuss arising out of that. And some of my examples now will be from Pakistan, but also from elsewhere. So the, the sort of traditional model, I guess, is that uh, if you've got BBC, big employer like that, or one of the big newspapers, that they would tend to have beat correspondents who would do a couple of years maybe health correspondent and then education correspondent and they'd build a career like that with no particular special specialism and that still goes on in in the big employers you know we would have a europe editor and the next thing is he'll be in america as editor doesn't know anything particularly about america but knows how to broadcast is the is the is the idea uh, and i think that is uh, that is sort of less sustainable now and uh, both you know from an editorial point of view and from just a professional point of view trying to manage careers it's not really going to work like that. And so this is my first example of uh, you know, a, a very, very successful specialist uh, person who, who uh, I mean, are you all familiar with Nate Silver, probably? Yeah. Uh, so he started off doing this, 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 this um, well, I think baseball stats, wasn't it? And then he's uh, ended up doing this election stats in America. And in 2008, you know, got, got virtually every state right. He got 49 out of 50 states right. Uh, and the basic idea was that he was doing He's doing polls in each state rather than national polls, and that just generates there's so much data in an American election. You can't do it here. There aren't enough polls. But if you do it there, you can generate the result. And he, he did that. And then in 2012, he did it com completely correct. And, 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 you know, and, it, and it totally works. So he has now got his platform on the New York Times and has now been hired by um, ESPN uh, and ABC and is now you know, a major league journalist purely on the basis of the, his specialism in how American election polling works. And just worth making the point, that other people were doing the same thing. And in fact, there's someone I think who does it rather better called uh, Sam, Sam Wang, who's, who's at Princeton, who's a neuroscientist, and he does it for a hobby. Uh, and and he, 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 put, he put up this website, which is much better. It's, it's actually, the statistical method is slightly better because it's sort of purer and... He's much funnier. I mean, he's a better writer. And it didn't go anywhere. He gets no coverage at all. So even though you've got the specialism, and I would argue in this particular issue, Sam Wang is actually superior at specialism, you need the platform. You still need a major outlet to get your material out there and to get the, uh, the, 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 the sort of profile that someone like, uh, like Nate Silver was looking for. You know, it's happening now. I don't know, you're probably all familiar with this guy. Who's, who's writing on Syrian weapons. An absolutely extraordinary story. I mean, he, he, you know, he's, a, he's a, a bloke who lives in Middle England somewhere, got no background in this at all, started in March, so nearly a couple of years ago, and he monitors the YouTube videos coming out of Syria and has developed this specialism in, in weapon systems and has managed to play stories 
in all the major media outlets around the world. He's got New York Times front pages and is you know, a significant journalist, frankly, uh, all on the basis of you know, sitting at home, developing a specialism and, and marketing it very successfully and getting you know, lots of profiles written about him and so on. So that's not bad for a couple of years blogging, which is basically all he's done. With that basic point that specialism is probably the way these things are going, I want to raise the issue of how you, go, how you should think about this when you're thinking about foreign correspondents and how much foreign correspondents need to know and what sort of people, if you were a foreign editor, that you would be hiring to become a foreign correspondent. And I just wanted to mention as an example of how complicated this getting. If you take Bloomberg now, I think they've got... Outside the US, they've got 255 print and 100 radio and TV journalists outside America. So they've got a lot of foreign correspondents. In the States, they've you know, got 1,200 journalists or something like that. But they've got outside the States something like 350. Most of Bloomsburg's subscribers are, are, are not American. So whether you can call these people foreign correspondents, I don't really know. In a sense, they're domestic correspondents providing stuff for their own domestic audiences. So that whole thing of who is a foreign correspondent, is breaking down. And these major media groups are employing people who are not really traditional foreign correspondents broadcasting back to their home community. They're broadcasting to a global community, and that makes it very different. And it means you might hire different people to do that, and they need to have different things in mind when they're doing their work. And, of course, don't forget that the traditional foreign correspondent costs, I'm told, something like a quarter of a million pounds to hire a year, and a local costs something like £50,000 a year to hire. So there's obviously a great desire amongst managers to, uh, to move it on. So what I'm going to do now is just play some videos which are all taken. So what I'm, and I'd be quite glad if you could think about when you see these videos, which type of reporter, I'm not really asking you whether you think the reporter was good or bad, but which type of reporter is in the best place to deliver the best report. And it's quite an interesting exercise in that these are all from the same facility. So I've got five or six foreign correspondents who went to Bajor, which is a tribal area in Pakistan, two or three years ago. But in fact, the issues are exactly the same. It could be a facility that happened yesterday, to be honest, in terms of the issues that are going on. So the Pakistan army had moved in, uh, cleared an area, and then they took a whole plane load or helicopter load of journalists up there to report it. So, I, and I won't play all the reports at length because uh, it'd be too long, but I've got the first one at length so you do, just get the story. And then I'll play you four or five other, mainly the piece to cameras, so you can get an idea of the different type of reporter they're hiring and the different, uh, the different sort of material that produces. So, here is, this is Sky, Alex Crawford, very sort of leading Sky foreign correspondent, traditional foreign correspondent, and here's her sort of minute and a half report on what happened. The most troubled of Pakistan's tribal areas and where key Taliban and Al-Qaeda leaders are hiding. The Pakistani authorities are stunned by criticism they aren't doing enough. So a group of journalists are taken on a rare trip there to show the efforts being made. This is a geographically important area bordering Afghanistan where militants crisscross to launch attacks against coalition forces and now attacks within Pakistan itself. <coughs> a group of men the military say are militants are paraded in front of the journalists. The Pakistanis say they've captured many and killed a thousand within the past few weeks, including five top commanders. These men insist they're just religious scholars. 
The battle here is intense guerrilla warfare, but the enemy is well armed with considerable firepower. This is no ragtag disorganized group, but a tough fighting force. The area is deserted, save for the two fighting sides. The civilians have long fled. They are pounding Taliban positions just a short distance away. Both sides realize just how critical this battle is. This used to be a Taliban hub. Now it's been taken over by the Pakistani military. So there you are. That gives you, that is a fairly standard, you know, Western reporter going out somewhere and doing their minute and a half, two minute piece, which they send back. I mean, in fact, there's a bit more of it, but that gives you the, the, the bulk of it. So this is Al Jazeera's uh, version of the same, same story. I'm just going to give you a, a brief amount of it. After years of intense fighting, Pakistan says it has finally gained control of Bajawar. But they didn't do it alone. Local volunteers known here as the Lashkar provided crucial help. They assisted the military in pinpointing areas under control of the militants, thereby eliminating their strongholds. For the first time since Pakistan's independence, the regular army has now set foot in areas close to the Afghan border, and they appear to be in control here, at least for now. Now, interestingly, there was no piece to camera with that piece, which suggests to me there was a disaster along the way somewhere that uh, <laughs> so, 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 something went wrong with it. Uh, uh, and then this is Fox. The commanding officer of the Bajur Scouts at this battle is beyond the Taliban. Any compound in this area that was caught harboring militants was raised to the ground like these behind me. The next step is eight miles up the road, connecting two areas that the military controls. He believes that this operation will be completed by the end of December. In Bajur, Pakistan, Scott Heidler, Fox News. And this, this is uh, a guy who does uh, Dawn TV. So it doesn't exist anymore, actually. But at the time, it was an international channel, but domestically produced. Uh, so, in a way, it is fair to include him as, uh, as, as part of this survey, as it were. I'm standing at the rooftop of a bus center in Dawadora Bajor Agency. This uh, bus center used to be a previously nerve center for Taliban militants. And then, that was the piece, that was the whole thing. And then, and then uh, this is uh, the guy from CNN. But these tunnels aren't big, it's a, it's a tight fit, uh, but there's just enough room to comfortably stand up and walk back and forth. All right, we've made it way down another tunnel into what looks like another sleeping area. About 10 sleeping bags lined up. All right, and out we come. It's a little tour of the tunnels and the caves that they built a year and a... Okay, so does anyone have a, a take on, on which of those work best for... They're all trying to achieve the same thing, which is basically global international TV news report on a definitely a big story. Which worked best? Does anyone have a view? on that, particularly the Reuters fellows, perhaps, yes. But certainly she made a, she did start it off that way. I mean, it was much clearer in hers, probably, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, there, there are quite a few issues here, and I think one is language. And if you're broadcasting on an international platform, you know, how much you can get away with in terms of local accents and language issues. So, I mean, that is there. But the bigger issues, probably, are to do with this balance between how much the correspondent knows, how much of a, you know, the ultimate specialist is someone like Kamal Haider. Let's see, the, the, the um, Al Jazeera guy is a very well-known journalist in Pakistan. He's a big figure in Pakistan, and he knows a, a, an awful lot about the country, and that, and that you could hear it in the piece. But does he know about the audience in the UK, the US, Africa, East Asia, 
the places where it's being broadcast to. Does Alex Crawford know about those audiences? She certainly knows about Western audiences. Does she know about audiences in the developing world? And so when you're in these international channels, I think there is a balance to be struck between the specialist knowledge that the correspondent can bring to it, but also the ability to communicate and the knowledge of what you're trying to communicate. In other words, what your audience understands before you start broadcasting. And most of the time, with local correspondents, the problem is they assume too much knowledge. And, and people get lost. And TV's like that. I mean, ra- radio, you can say, and online, you can get more information, you can do more detail, get away with more, uh, more analysis and so on. But on TV in particular, it is very difficult to do that. And I think, you know, one of the issues that you'd have to think about when trying to work out how specialist you should go is the degree to which your specialist actually understands who they're trying to communicate to, rather than just what they, they actually know. But, I mean, if you scale it back to the, the ultimate non-specialist, you know, the parachute rooftop journalist, and you go to the hotels, I've done it a hundred times, you, get, you land somewhere, you've been there 20 minutes, you go straight to the hotel and you start whittering on, you know absolutely nothing, and, and it's unwatchable. I mean, you try and watch this stuff, it's absolutely intolerable. Because these people don't, they include myself, what, what they're talking about. And you know, so it can be all very slick, it can be all very articulate and all very fluent, but it's basically meaningless because they, they don't have any, anything to say. So the, these are the issues that you need to think about as you're trying to work out how specialists to go. And my argument basically is you do need people with quite a lot of knowledge of a particular issue, but they do have to be able to communicate, they do have to be moderately slick, and they do have to understand this is the crucial point that I think is getting lost in all this uh, recruitment of local correspondents now is they do have to understand the audience that they're going for because otherwise they simply don't know what they're what they're meant to be uh, talking about so uh, if i'm going to just talk a bit about pakistan and if you were thinking about specialist journalism in the context of uh, pakistan these are some of the issues that you would need to be across so you know you need to know about the whole militancy thing that's going on You'd need to know about the army and the role of the army in Pakistan, the whole U.S. relationship, which you know, whole libraries of books have been written on, uh, the nuclear program, Kashmir, these national breakaway movements in Balochistan now, and uh, and then also the whole uh, British. If you're dealing in the U.K. context, the whole British-Pakistani community, one million plus people living here who have a very high level of knowledge about Pakistan. And uh, I'm particularly obsessed with this group which I'm working on at the moment called the MQM, who are based in uh, Karachi and, and, and Mill Hill, oddly, in London. How specialist do you need to go? I reckon, because basically I'm old, I've been able to get away with Pakistan, but it's too, it's too broad. You need to go narrower, I believe, than that to become a genuine authority on a topic. You know, for instance, so for instance if you took Islamic militancy, just one of those, one of those areas, you've got to know about the Taliban. Pakistan Taliban, TTP. You've got to know about the Afghan Taliban. You've got to know about Al-Qaeda. You've got to know about the Pakistan state, the ISI and all the agencies and so on. And you can even narrow it further down. So I do a day a week with an outfit called the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and they've got three people who for two years have done nothing but drones. That's all they do. And it gives them a huge advantage, because whenever there's a drone story, they, they, they can immediately place it as to what it means, what it had to fit it into the context. I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a, there's a, the, the next drone story will be that the Americans have developed some sort of spray 
that they can mark a target with. And it's an amazing thing. And they can, I'll give you an example. There's this, there's this bloke who was, I don't know if you know about the Hakani network, but they're a bunch of, they're a bunch of yeah, militant guys. And, and the son of the Hakanis was killed by a drone recently. And they couldn't work out how it happened, the, the, the Hakani family. So they put this massive local investigation in, in this tribal area of Pakistan. I think, what happened? And they eventually discovered that someone had been seen, as this bloke drove to a funeral, someone walked past his car and just sprayed it, sprayed it with a brush of dust. And that was it. The car was marked. And then when they got him on his own later, they drained the car. Now, that story is in The New Scientist. And it's sort of nearly there in terms of being able to publish it that the Americans have got this technology. And that because these bureau people do nothing but drones and have basically read everything there is on drones published, which is a huge amount of material, in the last three years, they understand that story. And they will be the first with it, I'm sure. They will be the first to nail down what the Americans have got, how they're using it, what the impact is, and all the rest of it. And they'll, in my yeah, I'm very impressed with them. I think they'll do a very good job on it. But it shows you how specialism works. Because there's no defense correspondent you know, for the Guardian or the BBC or the Telegraph, or whatever, we'll we'll get that story because they just they're just not into the detail in the same way as someone who's spent years working on one issue. And I'll give you another example of how this sort of specialism can matter. So this is a film which I, I was at on the Turkish-Syrian border early on in this conflict in Syria, and the people were coming out. The first refugees were coming out, and they were all complaining of atrocities. And so one bloke comes to me and says. I've got this film of what happened to us on, a, on my phone. I said, fantastic, I'll, 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 I'll get that from you. That'd be superb. And it, it, part of the problem with this was it took about five hours to get it from his phone. It was just technically difficult to get it from his phone to my computer. So it was quite a, so I, both editorially and technically, I wanted to believe that this was a genuine film. And then I played it. And of course, I'm thinking this is going to be fantastic footage of what's going on in um, of what's going on in, in uh, Syria. So th this is all going on, and I'm thinking, right, well, this is obviously a very strong bit of film. And so I'm, I'm really happy with this. I'm thinking, this is fantastic footage. And I'm thinking, yeah, I better be careful here. And sent it to someone in BBC World Service, fantastic like this. Just, just check this for me. It's Iraq. And this guy completely fooled me. Because he wants coverage. He's, he thinks, he doesn't understand. He thinks, I'll put this on, no one will spot it that it'll be fine. I, 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 he was present when I checked it, and I did give him a very hard time. But it, yeah, he didn't get it. He just didn't see what he was doing. I mean, the, the more recent example, the better known example, because this never went out, so it was not a problem. But I mean, this one did go out when the BBC claimed that this was a picture from Syria, when in fact it was from Iraq. And yeah, I heard a minister from Davos, or during the dull Davos thing, a Syrian minister saying, well, we can't believe anything the BBC says. Don't you remember? They put a photograph up saying it was Syria when, in fact, it was Iraq. You just need one of these to undermine a huge amount of credibility. And it is incredibly easy to do. And my argument is that one way around it is, again, to have specialist correspondents who have some hope of trawling this sort of material and spotting it when it comes and not making these big errors. So I just want to wrap up on one last thought about specialism and the authority it gives you to actually broadcast or write effectively. And that is particularly in relation to broadcasters. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this idea, but organisations like the big American networks and the BBC try to 
give unopinionated news, to stand back, just the facts, present both sides, neutrality, objectivity, and so on. But if you are a neutral, objective, just the facts, rooftop journalist, you still know nothing. <laughs> and so the authority that you're claiming is in fact, this is not my idea, this is an American academic's written about this, but he's absolutely right, is a trick. It is an attempt to persuade the audience that you are knowledgeable by standing back and being so objective and reasonable about everything and unopinionated and unbiased. But in fact, it is an attempt to persuade the audience that you're authoritative when in fact you're not really authoritative. You, you don't really have any genuine authority to know what you're talking about in any detail. And so if you take this story here, which was yeah, that's an amazing story, that a, a, a Pakistani general, which I, I believe this, took a million quid to sell the nuclear bomb. I mean, I believe this to be true. Uh, I've met him, I've put it to him, and he obviously denies it, but it was on the front page of the uh, Washington Post. And another of his mates took a large amount of jewellery, quite, 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 quite expensive jewellery from North Korea, to sell them nuclear technology. Now, I believe it in part because the journalist who did it is a genuine specialist, the Washington Post is a serious outfit that put... So they didn't publish it for about three years. They were so anxious about it. You know, it was thoroughly, thoroughly researched by a serious media outlet with a serious specialist journalist who basically originated the story. Had that been on a blog, no one's going to believe it. If he had just turned up with some guy he'd never heard of making the claim on an unknown website, of course, you're not going to give it any credibility at all. So I think it's back to the Nate Silver thing. I think you need the specialism to be credible. And I think you need the outlet to make, to give you a platform that is taken seriously and that has basically is trading on its reputation and therefore needs to protect its reputation and can't afford to be putting out stories that are not genuine. So those uh, are my main, main points. Uh, so my, my argument is that specialism is the way ahead. It's good for individual journalists because they'll be able to play stories on things they know about on various outlets. And that, from the point of view of uh, people reading this stuff and people consuming this stuff, uh, it does mean that you're generating material that is useful and basically can be believed.